Now, one of the things you'll notice in here is that it's, I've titled the sermon Stephanos, the crown of life. Now, the, the reason why is because, again, there are two places in the scriptures where it speaks of a crown of life. And let me read those for you in, by way of introduction. One is in James chapter 1, verse 9, I mean, verse 12. It says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast in trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. In the book of Revelation chapter 2, it says this, do not fear you who are about to suffer. So the crown of life both times is in the context of suffering and struggle. For the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. Each time you were to see those phrases. If you were to read those in the Greek. You would see that it says. I will give you the Stephanon of life. Stephanon tes zoes. That is his name. The name Stephen means crown. And he is one who really would embody that crown of life because he's going to step forward. And next week, we'll look at the sermon that he delivers and just how meaningful and meaty it is filled with the hand of God in the history of the, of the children of Israel. But today, we, I want us to look something at Stephanus and how God is pleased by the scripture to describe him. Then we will turn our attention from Stephanus and, and we will look at, at the Sanhedrin. That is, that is the council as well as the synagogue people who come against him. And then at, at the end, we'll, we'll turn and see something of, of how it all comes together. So let's first turn our attention to Stephen. And I want us to remember the scripture says certain things. It, it begins with Stephen and I want to start. Let's look at chapter 6 verse 5. What they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose. Now, it's going to list the seven men that they cho chose, correct? And on the last one, it's going to speak of him as being a proselyte, which means not even a Jew, but one who has completely converted from a, compl a Gentile background who, had, who would have, under the Jewish system, been circumcised and completely joined himself to the Jewish nation. Right? It's likely he was a proselyte before the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. Because as the church begins to unfold, that term kind of fades away. Because we come to realize that moving forward, circumcision, uniting yourself to Israel, committing yourself to the, the, the law of Moses, wasn't going to be what distinguished people any longer. It was going to be a new creation in Christ Jesus. It would be evidenced by faith working through love. As we see at the very end of Galatians that deals with that. But it says here of him. That was the only brief description. Otherwise with all those other men. Who would have at least met certain qualifications. Of good reputation. Full of the spirit and of wisdom. 
all of them had to have those qualifications. They had to have a, a, a proven reputation that they, they were trustworthy men because monies would be given to them that they were supposed to be delivering to widows responsibly. And they were supposed to be full of the spirit that that sense, which we'll look at in a moment, it, uh, doesn't have an ecstatic element to it. Being full of the Spirit is even what we're commanded. We're to be filled with the Spirit. With the, the flesh and the Spirit wage war against one another. It would speak not only of a gifting of the Spirit, but the evidential fruit of the Spirit in his life. And wisdom. Not enough to simply be a spiritually minded man. You needed to be a practically capable individual to accomplish the task that would be given to them. So that... Uh, of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, was for all seven of those men. But then uniquely when it describes these particular men, the scripture chooses, which indeed I could say the spirit chooses, God chooses to differentiate and distinguish Stephen from among them. And describe him. Now it's likely because it's going to immediately go on to explain to us of Stephen's faithful testimony and sermon. The message that he declared to those who stood against it. And then the martyrdom, the death that he would face for his faithfulness to the truth of God. And then it will we'll also go on shortly uh, to look at some of the ministry of Philip as we get further on in these chapters. But I want us to note this. It says of Stephen, chapter 6, verse 5. Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is the scripture's testimony. The community's testimony is that he is a man full of the spirit and of wisdom. That's a man with a good reputation. And sometimes when I see those kind of things, I step back for a moment and say, what if we were to put out papers listing all of our names on them and passing them around among those who know us? How might we be described, you know? Not how might you describe yourself, but how might others, what seems in their mind to characterize us. Now this idea, um, full of, it's interesting phrasing, because we do use that same kind of phrasing, but in more negative ways. We say this, this guy is full of hot air, which, what does that mean? He just, he just won't stop talking, and most of it is so irrelevant, like, where is that coming from? Why do you even need to say that? You know, little silence goes a long way, brother. You know, uh, but uh, what is someone full of? If you really want to think of it, the, the concept of full speaks of more of this idea. What you are richly abounding in. What you are thoroughly endowed with because one of the nice things about the concept of filling we were to be filled with the spirit was not something that we did we were much like the vessel of which the spirit is poured into us by the grace of God the same kind of sense it carries this idea full of full of the spirit and of wisdom full of faith and the Holy Spirit it's not something it's not this man's natural earthly character. He has been filled with this. It comes from another source. And we, we should never miss that. 
because the grounds for boasting in, in whatever graces we may have grown in are gone. We, we can't boast and ought not boast in our great character, our great integrity, our great endurance, because if we truly have these things, what's the real source of them? You know, and so he is full of these things. And, and again, in, in chapter six, verse eight, it's going to say Stephen full of grace and power. Just want us to remember that. So sometimes it's not just about looking at and maybe contemplating what people might write about us today. But if you were to think. If I knew they were going to be handing out these sheets with our names on it to say full of. And give two things of me. You got six months. Well. You might then be motivated. To try to make certain changes. Fill a thoughtfulness. Kind of start opening the door for everybody coming and going. But what I'm wanting you to get is this. When we're full of these things. These become issues of our prayer. So these things are noble things, these are praiseworthy things, these are excellent things, these are desirable things. And so you don't just say, from now on, that's me. From now on, I'm going to be like Stephen. Because I always remind us when we see these things, when the scriptures are pleased to single out of an, in, in, an individual. Stephen wasn't like this because he was Stephen. He was like this because he's the grace of God. He is like a vessel that faith and the Holy Spirit and power were poured into. And we want to, so we recognize that. So then when we see these qualities in him, we can appreciate them. But the ultimate praise for these characteristics goes to who? God. So that if you see anything good in us. It's not for our own boasting. It's not for our own praise. Because we are as God makes us. Now that does not on the other side brothers and sisters. Give the excuse. I'm lazy. I never show up on time. Kind of don't like helping people. You know. Uh, I prefer a, a, a sharp quick answer. As opposed to a soft, kind one. Because sharp, quick one ends the conversation. I don't really like people. And, and No, you can't do that. And, and then say, well, but that's the way God made me. So, you know, God, if God gets the credit for the goods, then let me give him a little bit of blame for the bads. Wouldn't you like to do that? You don't get to do that. We are those, as, as those given the Spirit, we, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. These are the fruits of the Spirit. And I always love to remind us of that. They are not stated there as the marks of an authentic Christian. They're not stated as motivational ambitions. They're spoken of as the sure and certain outworking of the presence of God by his spirit. It's the fruit of the spirit. Now, he could have called these things the marks of a Christian, the fruit of a Christian. But it's important to know where the real origin is. So that if that ain't happening in you, but you claim the spirit is in you, you can't blame God. 
If God has regenerated you, and we are all, as the scripture says, made one body by his spirit that he's poured into us, then the certainty that we can grow in these graces is guaranteed. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. It tells us in Corinthians, we all with unveiled faces are beholding his glory and being transformed degree to degree into the image of his beloved son. That is what is happening. So ready for this? Blame for failure on you and me. Glory and praise for progress and success all to God. Amen? And see, that, that's the, the unique thing is the believers hear that and they're not, oh, that ain't fair. We're like, yeah, let him get all the praise and glory. Let everyone see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. Let it be all about him and let me be lost in the mix. Let it be that down the road someone's like, I, I can't remember that. That guy's name. I can't remember his preacher. I can't even remember what city he was in. But uh, he spoke of Christ like this. He spoke of the power of God like this. And let, let the power of God. The person of Christ. The glory of his being. Let that be what sticks. Not other things. Because everything else doesn't matter. Oh the scriptures say glorious things. In terms of richly endowed with. Of Christ it says. The word became flesh. John 1.14. And dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. The glory as of the only son of the father. Full of grace and truth. And that's so, that's, and that's so astounding. Because full of grace and truth. He would be the embodiment. And ultimately the sovereign dispenser. Bestower of these things. Grace and truth. And he was full of it. In, the, in, in These things in the sense that there is. An inexhaustible. Supply of grace. He's abounding in grace. We come to him. In times of struggle. In times of need. And we say we need more grace. Is he ever out? Is he ever deficient? And we'll find that in all challenges and in all trials, that the Paul's testimony is true. He always avails to us sufficient grace. His grace is sufficient. And what happened is, I think for a moment, we know in, in 1 Corinthians 12, what happened is Paul for a moment stopped looking at the grace of God and the eternal purposes of God. And he was kind of looking at his circumstances, looking at his thorn in the flesh and thinking, this has got to go. You got to take it away. And then moments later, he said, your grace is sufficient. When I'm strong, when I'm weak, I am strong. All power and all glory to you. It, it all changes when our eyes fix upon him. In John 1, 17, it goes on to say the law came through Moses. But grace and truth through Jesus Christ. He embodied these things and he conveys these things. Um, noticing this, the scripture, not only in what we're seeing, the positive ways in Stephen, it uses the same language regarding others in a not so likable way. In Luke chapter 11, verse 39, as Jesus is speaking to those uh, Pharisees who wash the outside of the cup and the outside of the dish, but leave the inside undone. The Lord says to them, he says, at Luke eleven thirty-nine, 39, the Lord said to him, 
Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. I think, wow, what an opposite. Full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Full of greed and wickedness. Again, the reality is, this is Christ's testimony. So even if they were to step forward and say, no, no, no. I give. I'm generous. I give to widows. I help those in need. I give alms. I give mint dill cumin. I do all of these things. How dare you say that I'm greedy? But what is Jesus able to look right past? All the pretense and posing of righteousness externally. All of the claims of the mouth of men. And see the heart. You know, we can fool everybody. But we will never fool him. So we don't come to him boasting that we are full of these things. We come crying out to him, fill us with these things. Fill us with these things. It says more uh, in Matthew 23 as he says to them, Woe to you scribes, you hypocrites, for you are clean the outside of the cup, the plate, but inside you are f f full of greed and self-indulgence. I just like the variation of the, on, on the term that's there. There are whitewashed tombs that appear, Matthew 23, 27, beautiful on the outside, but are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So the simple thought that I wanting us to note here is everyone is full of something. Everyone has certain things that significantly, thoroughly characterize them. With regard to Stephen here, it tells us faith and the Holy Spirit. Now, again, when we, when we look at this idea of faith, this would be someone, we, I want you to understand there, there are two things that we ought not to divide that really go together. And that is a person who has faith will be characterized by faithfulness. These things don't divide. Again, looking at the language of this, the scriptures here, back in Acts 6, verse 7, it says, and a great many of the priests, it says, became what? Not the language we would usually uh, use. We would say a great many of the priests became believers, which is not wrong, but the terminology used here is what? Became obedient to the faith. Those that God, by his grace, through the implanted word, imparts faith to, we believe. And because we believe, we walk in faithfulness. Or back to our John 10, shepherd's calling analogy. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they what? Follow me. They, the, the scriptures at other times speak of, it's not simply those who are, who are Jews who would hope to inherit the promises, Galatians says, but those who follow in the footsteps of faith that Abraham followed in. So there is faith and there is following in the footsteps of faith, walking in faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. And that is characterized by faithfulness. We don't just do it in pretense. We mean it. 
It's real. It's the absolute grounds and reality of our life. Such that, um, I mean, you think about it with regard to our faith. The thought that we would have to uh, constantly urge brothers and sisters to seek opportunities. To speak about Christ to neighbors, co-workers, friends, people you meet. You've got to seek opportunities. There's a sense in which that shouldn't be so necessary because it's hard for us to speak not of him. I say, one of the things that commonly comes up and, and will with great regularity in East Texas because of the unexpected nature of the weather from day to day. You don't know if it's going to be hot or cold or raining. But whenever, and we speak of the weather, we speak of men's talents and skills and endowments and sports and music. But, but who controls the weather? So when we speak of, of a good weather, yeah, praise God. Wonderful weather we're having today. Uh, you know, how many times might you run into someone at the post office and as you're just passing, opening the door, They'll mention the weather. How can we think of the weather without thinking of it, of Christ? How can we think of our health without thinking of Christ? How can we think of beauty? How can we think of weakness and our need? How can we think of anything and not think of Christ? And if our thoughts are all of Christ because, because faith pervades all of our being... Christ will fill all of our conversation because, you know, every statement, God willing, if God wills, God be praised. Yeah, wonderful. Pray that God will give us better weather tomorrow. You know, everything, a sense of dependence, a sense of acknowledgement in everything. Because isn't that what we do in everything? We give thanks to him in everything. We acknowledge him. We do everything, whether we eat or drink, we do everything in the name of the Lord. That's characterized by faith. And so I want us to, to, to just note this for a second. Don't push Stephen up on this immense and impossible pedestal. Because he's not. Stephen wasn't one of the apostles. Stephen, to our knowledge, wasn't even necessarily one of the elders in the early church. And it, it, it speaks of him because of the role he's going to play in the next chapter. But this is not to be unique to him. This is the grace of God in the life of his people. Characterized by faith and the Holy Spirit. Which could speak of a boldness. Because remember, filled with the Spirit, they now spoke with boldness. Instead of hiding in an upper room with fearfulness. It can speak of the gifts it can speak of the fruit. And how dare we limit it to any of those. He was full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Full of a good reputation. And further, it goes on to say, uh, look what it goes down, down with me. In, uh, when you come to verse 8, it does say this. And he, this is the first time it happens. It says, and Stephen was full of grace and power. So faith in the Holy Spirit, grace and power. What, a, what an excellent list of things, isn't it? And again, it's to note this. Where did this power that he received come from? And it ought to be to a degree reminiscent to us of the words that Jesus said to his apostles. 
He says, wait in Jerusalem. For you will receive power from on high. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the earth. It takes some degree of dunamis. That is power by God to boldly stand up in a disputing and difficult situation. Which is what he's going to face momentarily. He was uh, full of, the, but more than that, also, verse 8 says, grace and power was doing great signs and wonders. So God was granting for miracles to be done by his hands. But I ask you once again, could Stephen do miracles? It wasn't a miracle man. The power for those great works were not his. He was full of them. They were endowments, bestowments, granting, enabling. It comes from someone else so that again, when someone is healed, is he wanting that they would, would glorify him? No, it's much like when, when uh, uh, Peter... Goes into the temple and looks at a man who's lame and says, look, silver and gold have I none. But such as I have, I give unto you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. They're recognizing, where's the power? It's not in me. It's in the name. And actually, this same Jesus of Nazareth phrase is going to end up at the very end of his sermon in chapter 7. And you'll see that that's kind of what characterized the whole point. Remember there was a time when Paul and Barnabas had gone. And they were speaking. And they did miracles. And suddenly the priests of that cult temple. Pagan temple come running out. And they want to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. And they speak of them as Zeus and Hermes. And what are they saying? No, stop, stop. We are just men like you. Now, just men like you, those men didn't even have the spirit. They didn't have salvation. They just, because they, Paul and Barnabas recognized the power is not ours. It comes from God. And, and Stephen was, was the first that we have listed here. In earlier chapters, it says many miracles were being done by the hands of the apostles. Stephen is the first outside of the apostles to also be granted this power. As he was stepping forward in his ministry as a witness to the person, power, and resurrection of Christ. God was pleased to authenticate his declaration of a powerful and risen Lord. By granting those powerful signs through the hands of his ministry there. And uh, not only do we see that he's full of those things. I would also go further and say we see that he's full of authoritative answers. Look what it says with me in verse 9 and 10 if you would. It says uh, they rose up now it does say this it, some of those who belong to the synagogue of the freedmen brothers and sisters it is astounding uh, how much you can read of scholars fighting over what the synagogue of the freedmen was because all of the remaining things that are mentioned are regions 
And so they try to speak of, well, maybe there was a region of libertines. Maybe there was, and there's all this kinds of speculation. And what's so sad to me is at times they get caught up in the minutia of the detail. The important thing is not who was disputing with him. It was what were they disputing and what truth was he declaring? Because whether it's these men or other men, the, the one thing that we do get in this is we note from Stephanus' name that it's likely he's a Hellenistic Jew. And the people that are mentioned there seem to also significantly be Hellenists. Means they seem to be Greek-speaking, Greek-culture Jews. Many considered the freedmen people who had once been enslaved and then set free and excommunicated from Rome. Many who relocated to this area. But the point is, Stephanos was looking as he was going and distributing to widows. And, and you know how it works. Communities in different regions might tend from time to time to conglomerate. And so you might end up having a Chinatown, a little Tokyo. You know, you, you end up having these, these little uh, communities. And you would have those kind of things develop also. Uh, a significant divide between those uh, of a more historic Jewish culture and those who are coming in having been foreign born, foreign raised, whose, whose first and predominant language is different, would often... And Stephanos is one who's delivering to the widows of the Hellenists who were in need. So he's in these communities. Where God takes him, where God brings him, he speaks of God. And as he goes there, they challenge him. It says they, it says they rose up in the ESV, rose up and disputed with him. Now, the language of rose up and disputed with him, when you put those two things together, rose up and disputed, doesn't just say they disputed, rose up and disputed speaks, uh, it, it is a little bit vigorous. There's a little bit of antagonism, a little bit of agitation. I don't know if uh, Jerry's ever faced that when he's out there on the street, but I wouldn't be surprised if at times it happens, you know, out preaching the gospel and suddenly antagonism rise up challenges, doubts, and, and you re, usually it's not in the form of questions. You know, it's not uncommon people will phrase as a question. I have a question for you. And actually they just want to tell you where you're wrong and they're right. It's not really a question. It's not trying to get information. It's not trying to figure out and grow. They rose up and disputed with him the problem was, look what it says in verse 10. But they could not withstand the wisdom and spirit with which he was speaking. Now, one of the reasons why is it, the nice thing in this circumstance is all of these individuals that were disputing were members of synagogues. You got that? Which means they are those who are committed to the Jewish law, committed to the Torah, committed to the Old Testament. And boy, that made it easy for the Apostle Paul in Damascus. Remember, he immediately after his conversion began going there to the synagogue and did what? Proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. You, these men standing among... You want to challenge the veracity of Jesus? 
the claims of Christ, you're going to lose if, it, if it's going to rest on the revelation of Scripture. And so in everything that they would bring, much like every time the scribes and the Pharisees came and tested Jesus. Remember that? You love that. He, he would answer them every time to where sometimes it says they tested him no more because he answered everything. Here again, he answered. God granted him a spirit of wisdom and the spirit and he answered all of their questions. Now, listen closely because this is a little bit sad. It would seem Someone has doubts and questions. By the grace of God. Answer them all. Truthfully. Definitively. Reasonably. Clearly. So what should their response be? Well brother you're right. I was wrong. Jesus is the savior. Hallelujah. I am found him. I'm saved. No more of it. But is that what happens? No, it's not what happens. What, what happens as soon as this happens, it says they could not withstand him. They secretly instigated men and said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against him. Strangely enough, he answered them with a spirit and with wisdom, with clarity and with power. And there was response and getting all of their things answered and answered in a rich and profound way. It still didn't save them. So here's an encouragement to you. Sometimes people say, I don't, you know, I would like to be more evangelistic, but I'm a little bit nervous that they will ask me questions that I can't answer. You know, so I, I and, and then it, it, what will I do if they ask me questions they can't answer? Listen, what if you could answer all their questions? Would that mean they will be saved? See, so the, your goal in going out to, to speak to people isn't to be able to answer all their questions. It is to tell them about Christ. Tell them who He is. The eternal Son. What He's done. Come in the form of man. Lived. Tempted. Without sin. Crucified, bore on his body, our sin became sin for us that we would become the righteousness of God in him. Was buried, rose again on the third day, ascended to the right hand of God, give gifts to men, and reigns from on high, is the head of all things indeed over the church. Right? I mean, so look, you don't have all the... so. Having all the answers does not guarantee an outcome. Actually, if having all the answers leads to this outcome, might be good not to have all the answers. <laughs> because the outcome that he gets having all the answers is what? They attack him. And then they eventually end up killing him as well. It, this reminds me in, in such a heartbreaking way. In John chapter 11. It tells us about the work of Lazarus. And when Lazarus was raised from the dead. After four days in the grave. Said many believed on him. And some went and reported to the Pharisees. 
And the response of the Pharisees, again, in my mind, should have been, He raised Lazarus from the dead? What manner of man is this? This is truly the Son of God. Right? I mean, what other answer should there be? Nobody raises the dead. But what was their answer? Now, everyone's going to go after him. What are we going to do? And so from that day on, they decided, here's our solution. Which I think their solution should have been, abandon all hope in ourselves and follow him. He has, he has victory over death. <laughs> he has power over the grave. There's none like this one. But theirs was, let's kill him. And worse than that, maybe we've got to kill Lazarus too, so that people don't see him walking around raised from the dead. This is the hardness of men's hearts. Look at what the, the synagogue and the Sanhedrin do in verse 9. They dispute it. That is disagreed. In that disagreement, it tells us in verse 10 uh, and 11 that they lost that dispute. Which generally you go into a dispute probably thinking you're going to win. And then when you lose, I've also noticed that it's, it's not an uncommon thing in our day and age for um, uh, apologists to go around and get in debates and disputes. And sometimes even within Christianity, men who hold differing positions get in debates and disputes. And it's been uh, uh, both interesting and disturbing to watch through the years that it, it, it's often this. Uh, when I speak to people about th that particular debate that's taken place, the man who held the same position as this lady, he won, in her opinion. The man who held the same position as this lady, he won. In her. So the winner is always the one who what? Says what I believe. Well, yeah, and generally that's all often, sadly, even how it happens in uh, 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 Christianity, you know? Everything's good, and please preach us the word, as long as it's the way we understand it. If you preach it in a way that we won't, don't understand it, or, or that we think differently, we ought to at least give pause and prayerful consideration of what we're hearing, as opposed to, well, that's not how I've always understood it. Wrong. That maybe we've always already understood it wrong. Let us be cautious. They lost, and when they lost, they were livid. They came at him. They, they induced men to speak against him, to spread lies. They set up false witnesses. Um, all of these kinds of things. And we also know this. They brought him and delivered him over it says in verse 12, they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they brought him, seized him and brought him before the council. That's the Sanhedrin. That's the same group of people that Christ was brought before. You know what happened then, right? Yeah. But what boldness he's, he's going to show there. We see that they are so sinful they are unwilling to accept wisdom and truth instead they set up a false witness and a sham trial and what's interesting is um, if you go with me over to chapter 7 at the end in verse 54 it says this uh, this is after he's preached and 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 preached to them of which if you read that preaching 
90% of it, 99% of it, they would have probably been agreeing with until he got to verse 51, which we're going to look at next week, where he begins to call them on their sin and their rebellion and their rejection. You know, people love to be told good things about themselves, but when told they're in the wrong, told they're in error, nobody likes that. It says in verse 54, when they heard these things, they were enraged. Now, I just want to help out briefly for those who, who are using the KJV here. It says they were cut to the heart. Which when, the, when the, on the day of Pentecost, when they were cut to the heart, we like that. But these are two completely different phrases, and so I want to make this clear. If I was to be, render both of these more literally, on the day of Pentecost, it says they were pierced in the heart. That phrase linguistically carried this idea, they were overwrought with sorrow and grief. All right, Pierced in the heart, grief. Whereas the phrase cut to the heart that is used here if in a more literal rendering it, the new american standard says they were cut to the quick which again isn't a phrase we modernly use and so these other translations they were fired up they were really upset i mean they they were intensely provoked to rage and infuriation it's, it's a strong term. And so it, and it says, they ground their teeth at him. He's declaring to them the righteous one and the only hope of salvation. And they are angry because the gospel includes the fact that they are rebellious. <laughs> it includes the fact that they are stiff-necked and that they are sinners. And they don't by nature they, by nature, resist the Holy Spirit. In this context means the Holy Spirit is the one who has given us the scriptures, given us the word of God. The, what the Spirit has given us, the word of truth, we declare to you, and you just resist it. You just refuse it. And so it says, they ground their teeth at him in absolute rage. And then goes on further and says... Uh, I want, to, I want you to know in, in this thought, verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 33 is, a, is another place where this happens. So go with me to chapter 5, verse 33, if you would. God's word says this, and this is um, when the apostles are speaking when they had been uh, set free by the, by the angel overnight. And they said... Um, Verse 32 says, we are witness of these things and so is the Holy Spirit who God has given to those who obey him. Verse 33 says, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee of the council named Gamaliel. That's that idea. They were enraged. So, sometimes declaring truth, declaring it graciously, declaring it faithfully, declaring it lovingly. Still will get rejection. Look at the end of verse 15 of chapter 6. It says this. When, he, when all this was happening. They gazed at him. 
And all who sat on the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. What does that mean? Strangely enough, you look to commentaries, you can get a lot of fanciful things in there. Uh, some, uh, some of them like to link it to Moses, that his face was glowing. Some, some sort of light was emanating from him. Uh, it could have, well, we can entertain angels unaware. Where, where if they were glowing, I might figure it out. So, did every angelic appearance have a shining face? I don't know. Now, for this also, face like an angel does not mean, let's look at ancient Italian paintings. You know, where you look at the face of an angel. Is that a man? Is that a woman? I can't even tell. You know, that's not necessarily what's happening here either. The sense is probably that why is this man not fired up? Why is he not, why is he not like enraged and animated? Nor is he, nor is he like, quivering and fearful why why is he just so calm and serene and clear and confident why why is he unflappable unwavering what's going on here doesn't he know that we can we can threaten to kill him don't they hear all the things that we're shouting at him and yet here he is just Now, how could someone possibly be so, what I believe most likely represents this passage, so fearless and calm and, 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 and confident and not agitated in the face of all of this? Because he knows who's in control. He, know, he knows who has victory over the grave. He knows what he's been called to. He trusts in God's purposes. And it's all going to unfold beautifully now i'm just going to close by turning our attention lastly to stephen's petition so go to the end of chapter seven with me god's gonna as he's dying god is going to be pleased to full of the spirit open the heavens so he can see his 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 soon to be journey he sees christ at the right hand again he's declaring in their presence the risen and living lord which fires them up even more but let us end today by looking at Stephen's petitions. He says in verse 59. While they were stoning them. He called out. Lord receive my spirit. He's done. He's absolutely confident and ready to go. He's not saying deliver me from these men. He's not saying. You know he's not saying intervene. You know, force field. He's not saying any of that stuff. What is he saying? Yes. Receive my spirit. Uh, it, it, to me, there's a sense of the, the language of Paul in Philippians 1.23. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with the Lord, which is far better. And I must say that once he has been pleased to open up the heavens to his, to his sight and he sees Christ. Do you think anything around him is going to be a pull? Do you think he's going to want to stay? You see the risen Christ in all of his glory and beauty. You're like, yes, I want that. I want there. None of this anymore. More than everything. Paul even said in Acts 20, I do not count my life as any value nor precious to myself, only that I may finish my course in the ministry that I've received from the Lord to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. 
what he's basically saying. And Stephen is saying, hey, if my course is done, if my service is finished, Lord, receive my spirit. Done. And then the last thing that he says. And what's interesting is this falling on his knees, he cries out with a loud voice. This is kind of the opposite of what we would anticipate at this point, right? Make them pay. You know, let them know. Let them bear these consequences. No, what does he say? Lord, his, his actual words are, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Now, I want you to note this. He does not say do not hold sin against them. He's wanting them to not hold that specific sin. Now, according to uh, uh, many documentary testimonies in, in, uh, in the scriptures, it, the Luke account also has Jesus on the cross saying something similar. It says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now, it wouldn't be forgive them Totally and entirely. But realistically. They have just killed the son of God. What would seem to be the immediate and appropriate response? Nuke them. Everyone done. Right? You, you, you kill the prophets. You kill the son of God. But father forgive them. They don't know what they do. Lord. Do not hold this. Sin against them. Basically pleading, don't take their lives. May they live longer. That they might hear the gospel. That they might yet receive the spirit. That they might yet come to repentance. He prays not vengeance upon them. But that they might continue. So in this passage, we've seen different things. And I'll just recount these things for us. Stephen was abounding and thoroughly endowed with faith. The Holy Spirit. A good reputation, full of spirit and wisdom, full of grace and power. He was full of authoritative answers. He had the face of an angel. A resting serene confidence in God. We saw the synagogues in the Sanhedrin. They disagreed and disputed. And when all of their questions were so remarkably answered, likely from the scriptures, if we judge by the sermon we'll look at next week, in their, dis in their, in their loss of the argument, they were livid, enraged, and angry, senseless. Instead of reasonably responding, yes, this is where the scriptures lead us. It's no, we will never go there. Sinful and savage, unwilling to accept the truth. They stir up false witnesses. They hold a sham trial. They're enraged, and then they stone him. And Stephen's petitions prove that he is a man who is full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Full of grace and power. Because he looks up in the last moments of his life. Not with doubt and uncertainty and fear. He, what he says every single one who knows the grace of God in Christ can say on our last day. And that is this. Lord Jesus. Receive my spirit. It, it's, it's not a statement of loss. It's a statement of victory. The end of a race run. The reward for a life spent and served. And then lastly, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. A degree of ongoing concern and compassion 
for those who are yet enemies of the cross. Because we know at one time, such were some of us. And there would be a man who is there during the stoning, willfully engaged in the activity. Those who were older and more mature than them, he was holding their coat so that they could even be more free to hurl stones. And then he would make it his commitment to wipe out the church and persecute. And yet a persecutor still breathing murderous threats. If God had held that sin against them and nuked them like I said, Saul would have been wiped out among the rest of them. But the mercy of God was going to meet with a young man who was standing there that day. And I don't but know and nor do you if the mercy of God yet met many more who had once picked up stones against once hurled blasphemy and abuse, once lived as the world, once lost in trespasses and sin, who would come to know the delivering, transforming, saving, and abounding grace of our God in Christ Jesus. Amen. Lord, we again give you all praise and honor and thanks as we pray. We thank you for uh, showing us within Stephen these, these works of your grace. That you filled him with these things. God, our longing is that you would also fill us. Lord, we know that you are able to cause your grace to abound even to the chief of sinners. God, in spite of our own weaknesses, we pray you would cause your grace to abound. That you would make use of a man such as Moses who says that he can't speak. You would endow him. You would grant ability beyond uh, uh, our natural talent and skill set for your service. God help us just to long to serve you. And may you be pleased to fill us with all that is necessary. That we can render that service to your praise and to your glory. Lord may we be ready for the antagonism and the onslaught of the enemy. And those who are still in his kingdom. And may we be patient and prayerful that you would yet be pleased to deliver many. That they might know the grace that we have. And the confidence that someday you will receive our spirit. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.